so the reason why I love donkeys, and it's funny, I think that's still in my Twitter bio. No one has asked me about that in a very long time. So actually, they're one of the hardest working animals. People don't know that. They have one of the kind of longest stamina for, for doing work, hmm. but they're actually one of the most abused. Hmm. At least in Europe, there's kind of a, a long history of really working them to the bone. And so in past years, I have adopted and sponsored charities that go and rescue donkeys from these kind of maltreated farms and bring them on a farm in France where they can sort of retire nicely. Um, so I always have a lot of empathy for hard work and donkeys are an embodiment of that. They don't have the grace and elegance of the horse. They're not some of the cutest animals, so they don't get a lot of love. Mm. And so I, you know, ever since I was young, I always felt like I wanted to give them some love back. You know, I mean, I've never started a podcast episode talking about donkeys, so I'm glad we're doing this. Okay, that was Anastasia Lang, CEO of the ad measuring platform called CreativeX. This episode is not about donkeys, but hasn't your image of them been changed forever now? I know, you're welcome. Welcome to Uncooked a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked, I'm excited to introduce you to Anastasia Lang. She founded CreativeX as a tech platform that measures the effectiveness of the creative that we see out in the wild, all those images, from big brands like Unilever, Pepsi, Google, and L'Oreal, just to name a few. They all use CreativeX because the problem that CreativeX is solving is 84% of marketing content is visual and it's doubling every year. And creative is proven to be the number one driver of performance, but yet it's the least understood and measurable aspect of the way brands even communicate with consumers. So whether your ad spend is in the millions or it's 100K, it's important to know what's working hardest for you. There's lots to cover, so let's dig in. Can you give us a little bit of a short backstory on Anastasia, how you kind of led yourself to start CreativeX and your little journey there? Sure. The short answer is that it was really a series of happy accidents. I never saw myself as a founder. I would never have given myself the title of entrepreneur. I was always uh, what someone had once described as an underconfident overachiever. So I went to university, I triple majored because I wanted to break the record of getting three majors in four years. And so I studied psychology, oh sociology, gosh. and French, completely unrelated. And then I went to Google. And again, my type A personality kicked in and I really wanted to optimize for the career trajectory there. And I was very lucky to have done very well at Google and have had sort of great managers who pushed me through. And then, you know, I don't know if it's kind of the early to mid twenties malaise that set in, but I found myself getting a little bit bored every two years or so. And Google was very good at giving me other challenges and taking me to other departments or the countries or the rules. But eventually that feeling kept coming back of, I didn't feel like I was taking enough risk. And the background there is my family, my family immigrated to the US when I was a teenager. And so I saw the lengths they had to go through to try and create. From where? My family's originally from Russia, from Moscow. But then we moved to Vietnam when I was seven and then spent a couple of years living in Bahrain, next to Saudi Arabia, and then Hungary before we moved to the U.S. Wow. So I saw sort of the hustle my family went through firsthand. And then I got to this point, and I still very distinctly remember having this conversation with my mother where I said, 
I'm too young to be this comfortable. And she said, no, we worked for you to be able to be this comfortable. So we, we had very different incentives. But, you know, long story short, I came to this point where I was really looking for a ticket out, any ticket out, not because I have very good things to say about Google, always will, but I, I wanted some sort of risk. I wanted to feel really uncomfortable again, you know? And That's so interesting. Uh, a friend of mine at the time was leaving to start a company. He had this idea around customizable commerce. And I think that was my ticket. That was sort of my lifeline now. I mean, a little dramatic, obviously, in the lifeline. But so I jumped with him and we left Google in 2012 to start a company called Hatch, which was an e-commerce business. And in building out that company, which was not very successful, it did not go very far, but it did lead us to what became CreativeX. And eventually the insight that we had that transformed the company into what it is today was we were building this e-commerce business. Think of it as kind of like a glorified Etsy. We sold lots of lifestyle goods that could be customized. Mm -hmm. We started seeing that we had such a hard time, you know, getting people to come to our site and buy our product or the traditional e-commerce challenge. Right. We didn't have the money to pay to compete, but we saw a very clear pattern of the imagery and videos we were using had dramatically different reactions from our customers. But we couldn't understand why and dad drove us insane. You know, as a team of predominantly engineers, the idea that we could more objectively <laughs> answer these questions drove us up the wall. And we were in this very sort of unusual position where we were running out of money. No one wanted to give us any more money. It was very clear the business wasn't working. And I, I refused to give up. You know, I tried anything and everything that I could to try and make this business work and eventually stumbled upon this insight of, if I could understand imagery and video more objectively, then perhaps I could use that to get the company to grow. And so, you know, I remember back then I created spreadsheets where I would put every image or video we were using and I had columns for objective attributes that I wanted to understand. So, you know, are there people in this image? Zero, one, you know, mm. is there a woman? So we would do this and then take that spreadsheet data and combine it with performance data to look for patterns. Oh. And Basically, it ended up really transforming the business, right? So we, we started seeing growth, we got to profitable unit economics, all that good stuff. And I went to fundraise for that company in 2015. And a number of people who dug a little bit deeper and looked under the hood sort of said, well, what is this here? How are you guys growing and what are you doing? And I explained some of the scrappy things our team was up to. And a number of people pointed out that that was a much bigger business opportunity. And frankly, that was what the team had found ourselves really getting excited about. So long story short, we're put in this great position where an investor said, you know, I won't give you money for Hatch, but if you want to spin this out into a separate business, I'm really interested in that. And we had a term sheet that literally said new company on it. So we took it and ran. And that was how CreativeX was born. Unbelievable. <laughs> and, you know, the only reason I tell such a lengthy story about this is because, you know, if there are people who want to start their own companies or are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs or CEOs who are listening, it's not sort of ordained, right? I, I didn't wake up one day dreaming this or thinking I was going to be this. Right. The title still sometimes scares me. I think our ability as humans to survive and thrive in a variety of environments is really exceptional. So I think if you're considering it, throw yourself in and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, the path usually is never linear to find yourself where you are. Just to circle back for a second on something that you said, you said that someone looked under the hood and said, hmm, this is interesting. Was that an investor that happened to help you kind of get there to that conclusion? 
Yes, it was an investor and some data, frankly. So initially, as I said, we were just doing this tinkering with understanding imagery and video entirely for our own gain of trying to improve our demand generation, our customer acquisition, right? Right. And so once those metrics started to improve, I went out to fundraise for Hatch, that first company. I must have had 100 investor meetings. I mean, I still have the spreadsheets. I kept it all in my type A way, kept it all tracked in spreadsheets. And all of them said, no, 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 no. And in my last investor meeting that I went to, which ended up being the one that took a bet on us, I decided I was going to do something radically different. Because, you know, the definition of insanity, right, is you, you do the same thing, you expect different results. Sure. And that's, that's actually what was happening. So I remember this very distinctly because, you know, I'd gotten to the point where we had $7,000 left in a bank account. We had a team of five engineers. And if you know how much engineers get paid, you certainly know $7,000 yeah. is not going to cut it. Um, no. <laughs> for five engineers, let alone probably one. And, <laughs> you know, I got to this point where I was like, okay, you know, I have lost, right? I thought I lost the battle, but actually I've lost the war because I was able to, with the team's help, get to a place where the business was doing well again but no one wanted to invest. And essentially we kept hearing the same thing over and over again from these investor conversations, which was, we like you, we like the team, we don't like this product, we don't like the space, so call us when you do something else. Mm. And so I walked into this last investor meeting and said, look, I know I'm here. We initially had this meeting talk about Hatch, but I actually want to talk to you about something else, which is how we got Hatch to start working again. And he was very intrigued by that, right? And dug in yeah. deeper and tried to understand and the context of that time, this was the summer of 2015, and it's going to feel crazy now, but this was the year that Instagram, Pinterest, and Snapchat all launched their monetization tools, mm -hmm. all of which was visually based. Right. It was also the year, I believe, where display advertising overtook search. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, this problem that we were facing on a micro scale, it became very clear that this was kind of a macro problem, right? That everyone was communicating visually but there were no tools to really help you navigate that that massive shift that was happening. And that's where a little bit of serendipity came into play. As Anastasia analyzed imagery and videos to figure out why her e-commerce business wasn't working, she ended up uncovering a more viable business. What's important to point out here is how they landed on starting CreativeX. In spite of the fact that they had a vision to be an e-commerce company, they were still open enough to listen. They listened to all the smart people around them, like investors, who pointed out, you know, I'm not sure about this e-commerce model, but there's something really interesting about understanding how imagery performs across social platforms. And sometimes it's hard to see the opportunities right in front of you until someone from the outside points them out. And that happens a lot, but we're not always open to listening. The challenge that we see is creative excellence as a concept is nothing new. Marketers have been pursuing the goal of creating excellent content that comes through with their audience since day one. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot harder now yeah. because there's a lot more content. You have to produce it much faster. You have to customize and personalize it to everyone under the sun. You have to do it with a fraction of the budget and you've got a lot more data to play with. Right. <laughs> I genuinely believe it's never been more difficult to be a marketer than it is today. So. What technology have we built? Well, we started with the first premise, which is before we can think about these more complicated aspects of creative excellence, let's get the basics right, which we term as creative quality, right? There are a lot of best practices proven time and time again to be really important in 
even giving your piece of content a chance to succeed. There are things like brand it, right? That doesn't necessarily mean put a logo on it, but if the average view time of an ad is two seconds and your logo or brand identity doesn't come until second five, you've basically wasted those impressions and that money. Right. So our first product, which was around creative quality, was taking those creative best practices that are specific to each platform, automating our ability to detect them using a combination of different technologies, computer vision, optical character recognition, speech detection, things like that. And the proposition that we went into with brands is we said, look, you know, the amount of content you're producing is growing year on year. You have agencies, marketers, all producing content for different platforms, different brands, different markets, et cetera. Are we actually adhering to what you consider to be your basic standard of quality? And so we worked with each brand to understand what their quality standards were. We automated that. And then what we could do is start reporting on how much of their content actually adhered to their quality standards, how much money was being spent on content that did or did not meet those standards, which agencies were producing content that was in line with that versus content that was not in line with that, right? Where the leaky bucket. And what we found time and time again is because of this content proliferation problem, about 20% of, I mean, pretty much every brand's content that we've looked at so far, only 20% of their content met their own internal standards for quality. Oh, wow. Which is a tremendous amount of wastage, right? Yeah, yeah. Tremendous amount of wastage. I think it would be helpful as you're talking, if you could share a real live example of which platform. So if it's an Instagram and a brand and a piece of content, if you could walk us through that kind of example, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take someone like Unilever. Unilever was one of the very first brands who started using it, was brave enough to start using it, testing our technology. Love it. Unilever is the second biggest advertiser in the world, right? They're live in every market. They have, I think, over 100, 200 brands. And they realized this problem very quickly because of the amount of content they produce. And so for them, what we went in is we went in and tried to understand what are the specific best practices that lead to better performance on YouTube, on Facebook, et cetera. We automated detection of all of that. Then we got them. The first step is, we connected all of the places where they're running content into our system so we could programmatically pull that content into our dashboard in real time and give them those statistics around, hey, here's your quality score, here's how much money you're spending efficiently, here's how much money you're spending efficiently, and here's where the bleed comes from. Did you start with one particular brand or did you start at a macro level and say like, okay, let's start with standards across all of Unilever and then let's drill down to a brand? So- when it comes to something like creative quality, what we found is it's an on or off thing, right? It's not like the kind of thing where you're going to optimize one campaign and get some insights. When we talk about creative quality, the things that brands track tend to map to global brand agnostic best practices that are channel specific, right? So they'll vary between Facebook and YouTube, but they'll kind of apply across all brands. Mm -hmm. What we tend to see typically is Brands will dip their toe in the water, usually not with one brand, but with one region, because a big part of this data is being able to sort of see if I'm spending X amount in the US, who are the brands who are doing really well, who are the brands that aren't. So a regional rollout is very typical. And then once they see the data come through, for a lot of the brands that we work with, you know, one of the first reactions is they've never seen all their content they're producing and actually running in one place. Mm which can be a bit of a shock, right? Because it really puts this visual storyboard, a live visual storyboard in front of you that says, here is the message that you are sending to all of your consumers. Wow. 
That's so helpful, though. I could just imagine to see all in one place, every single message. So you could start to see, basically compare and contrast themes and understand like, so we're very consistent here, but we're extremely inconsistent over here and what we're saying and portraying. Interesting. So that's exactly it, right? So for Unilever, their journey was, and then they've talked about this publicly, so I'm allowed to use some stats here. When they first started, what they saw was that their adherence to their own best practices, which they call digital mandatories, which is sort of their definition of creative quality, was about 20%. And for a company like Unilever with a multi-billion dollar ad budget, that's a lot of money being spent on content that doesn't even meet your own quality standards. And by the way, here, we're just talking about media spend, mm. right? We're not even incorporating the production costs that sure. went into making those assets. So that's a lot of wasted impressions. And so the journey we took with them and the journey we take with every brand is, you know, how do we get that 20% to 100%, right? Because that, and I hate this expression, but it's basically like the low hanging fruit, mm. right? Like get the basics, right? You know, size your ad correctly, put a logo right. in it, you know? If it's Facebook where, you know, 95% of people watch stuff without sound, like make sure people can understand it without sound. So get these basics right. And they should be non-controversial things that don't impede anyone's creative judgment or vision. We think about it as really creating a canvas that gives the art a chance to be seen, seen and heard, right? So that's usually the first thing, but we found time and time again, and we have a bunch of tools that, that help brands with this is they can get from about 20% to 80, 90% in somewhere mm. between six to eight months. So that's millions and usually just case billions that can be saved on making content run more efficiently. And then the journey evolves. So once you get the, the basics, right, the creative quality, right, then the question is, okay, now that that's on autopilot and we have technology to always help us figure out when we're not doing this, we give them tools so their agencies can test content before it goes live to make sure everything's good to go then it starts to get steeper, right? Then we start yeah. to dig into things like distinctive brand assets and brand consistency. So it's great that you've got a logo in it, but for a lot of these big brands, the goal is to create cognitive shortcuts that help the consumer really react and resonate, right? Yes. Now, the difficulty with these distinctive brand assets is there are a lot of them. They're not used consistently. And the less consistently they're used, the more they lose their power. So all the billions that are spent in building up that shade of Coca-Cola red so that even without the logo, you know exactly yeah. whose content you're engaging with. Or, you know, if I say, <laughs> you know, that's McDonald's, mm -hmm. right? If you don't reinforce that, it goes away. I think it's key that CreativeX first works with brands to understand their quality standards before even diving in. Because when was the last time your company reviewed the quality creative standards? It's a discipline that's more the exception than the rule, if we're being honest. I mean, we tend to get bored as marketers and quickly move on to the next thing before we really examine what worked in the last marketing effort we did. Anastasia mentioned that only 20% of companies found content met their own quality standards. 20%. So if you're a big company putting out a lot of content, it's key to ensure that not only do you have a unified narrative connecting all the channels, but it's important to ensure that you're visually telling your brand story in a cohesive manner. It's not an easy feat when there's so many moving parts, but with the right partners looking out for your best interest, it can be done.
can we talk about branding? Because I'm so interested in measuring branding because I feel like that's such a, it has always been a huge hole in the marketing and analytics field because it's so amorphous. And you do say that brands can go deeper by tracking custom and distinctive brand elements and measuring consistency and your branded investment. And I really would love to know and have you just explain and maybe give an example of how brands can measure that they're telling a consistent brand story across all platforms and all markets, because that seems to be the holy grail question that not a lot of brands know the answers to. Yeah. Look, I think when it comes to branding expertise, I am an amateur compared to you here. So so you're going to have to keep me honest. But by the way, I make no claims to say that this is the holy grail. I think this is step one in the journey, right? And the first step that we've taken in the journey is we've said, you spent a lot of time building up your brands. Let's start with taking your brand book and let's automate it for all those things you consider distinctive about your brand. So if we're talking about McDonald's, it might be the sound, you know, the it might be the Ronald McDonald character, the golden arches, their shade of red, the I'm loving it tagline. You know, again, I'm sure there are others, the happy meal yep. box, right? Yep. So we try and understand what are all those things that they consider really distinctive and a cognitive shortcut for their brand. And then we build identifiers to recognize each of them. And then we essentially let that run loose across all of their content. We try to understand how many assets are what we consider truly branded meaning they have something beyond the logo that says this, you know, the the test we often apply is if I took the logo out, would you know who this was? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you would be amazed. I mean, maybe actually you probably wouldn't be amazed because you're here in this space. How many ads are completely undifferentiated once you strip out the logo? Yes. And so the first layer of insight is let's talk about truly branded content versus content that isn't truly branded. And then beyond that, we go deeper to try and understand, again, investment in branded versus unbranded content. We go to look at usage of each distinctive brand asset, which ones come in pairs, which ones come alone, how those assets differ by platform, how those assets differ by market. We see a lot of regional variation. And what we've come to find is that regional variation is actually not intentional or strategic, that because you have different teams making different decisions, yeah. somewhere at some point, a decision gets made. And again, I, I'm using completely fake example here that, you know, in, in India, we're going to use the Golden Arches, but in the US, we're going to use Ronald McDonald. They're oftentimes, people aren't aware that they've made this bet on focusing on one part of the distinctive brand asset in different markets. And the vision is, and then where we're getting to is, we're enabling brands to set a custom formula for what brand consistency means to them right, which they can tweak. So maybe that means you've got at least three distinctive brand assets in each of your ads, which makes that piece of content consistent. Maybe it's something else. So we're we're giving them an opportunity to play around with it. And then we're using that consistency score data to try and map to longer term business impact. So does an increase in consistency over time drive brand lift? Does it drive sales lift? How does it correlate to your digital performance metrics? So do ads that have a higher consistency score tend to get more views than ads that don't, right? So you start to be able to play around with the data. And this way I said, for us, this is step one, because step one is measurement and understanding. And then step two is optimization. And we're not at the optimization stage yet. So just to follow up on that. So have there ever been any surprises that you've seen across platforms? So just taking, let's keep going with the McDonald's example for a second. So McDonald's assets working 
from Facebook, but they don't work on Instagram, but they work on Pinterest. So can you just talk a little bit about how do you find the middle ground if you're finding that every platform is responding differently to the different brand assets? So what we find here is that when it comes to the creative quality, there are differences by platform because they're platform specific things. So far in our work in tracking brand consistency, we have not really seen too many channel specific variations where we've seen more as regional variations. Okay. The only channel specific variations might be from things that are embedded in how the platform works. So staying with the McDonald's example, the tutu sound might be very powerful on YouTube because it's a sound on platform versus it might make no difference on Facebook yeah. because most people are going to watch it without sound. So it's nothing about the distinctive brand asset in and of itself. It's more, again, going back to that canvas mm. where the Facebook canvas isn't really set up to take sound on board yeah. as one of its key ingredients. So can you give our listeners kind of like the cheat sheet by social platform of like, what are some things that really do work on some of these social channels that everyone's spending so much time in? Absolutely. We actually have something coming out, which has taken all the work that we've done, all the research that they've independently published and aggregated all together to say, these are sort of five best practices that you should be applying across pretty much all your content, right? And I don't think anything I'm going to tell you is rocket science, but I think because it is so basic, people forget to do it all the time yeah. because basic stuff is sometimes not sexy. So the first one that we talked about is brand early, right? You've got a tiny, tiny window to make an impression, often one or two seconds. Branding does not have to mean put a logo in it do something that says, hey, that impression is from this brand, just so you have a chance of actually continuing to build recognition. On that same theme, engaging through product or people has been shown time and time again to be very powerful. And both of them seem to work for different different scenarios. So if you have a product, show it early, show it being used, et cetera. People have been shown time and time again to drive more engagement. So close-ups of people early on, again, very powerful in terms of that retention and getting someone to actually try and stick through to continue watching it past the sort of skip button, right? Other things, very, very basic is make sure your asset is framed correctly. Because of how much content we're producing and because of the number of platforms it goes on, what a lot of teams tend to do is take that YouTube video, which is 16 by 9, and run it as an Instagram story, which is a nine by 16 format. Right. So they've literally wasted, you know, what, 60, 70% of their ad space to <laughs> sort of the black, right? Yeah. The ads yeah. Such little room. And it's one of those basic things that people don't think about, but like take up the real estate you're given, right? That's take the opportunity you have to use the yes. space you've got. Another thing that we see time and time again is brevity and being concise is very important. Everyone has a slightly different length here. I think uh, Facebook recommends anywhere from 10 to 15 seconds. Snap recommends five to six. I think YouTube is also five to 15 for optimal engagement. Find ways to tell your story quickly and maybe tell more stories, but, but tell them quickly in a way that, again, they kind of build on top of each other. So a common best practice here is, especially for brands that are doing television, yes, you might have that minute long TV spot, but cut it into 10 different five-second video ads and use that instead, which we've seen a lot of marketers do. Starting with Anastasia's last point, a lot of times it's the brass tax basics, which need to remain consistent across platforms like 
image sizing and clear CTAs and ensuring a video has readable text and is not just watchable. I mean, these go back to quality standards that are important to develop, especially if you have a lot of people touching your brand communications. A quarterly practice of documenting and revisiting brand standards is a place to start. I mean, considering how often platforms change their algorithms and their features. And let's talk about branding beyond the logo, my favorite part. Everything Anastasia touched on before are all the different layers of branding companies tend to forget. Big brands, they certainly get it, but there's so much opportunity for smaller D2C or B2B brands that they leave on the table. For example, audio branding is huge. What kind of music are you using to intro your videos or your podcasts or even large stage events? Do you have influencers? And are they aligned with your brand DNA? If not, it can seriously hurt rather than help your brand. When Anastasia talks about cognitive shortcuts, the simplest way to test it out is to cover your logo and see if all the other visual copy cues are distinctive to your brand. If it's not, DM me. This is what I do. I was just going to ask you if you see any place given these, you know, few seconds that we have really to grab people's attention, do you see a place for branded, truly branded messages versus a product message? So it's hard to convey like an emotive brand message to kind of talk about purpose and their point of view on the world and all. How do you convey that in six seconds? And do you reserve those things just for product messages and you put kind of the branded POV in a different bucket? How do you view that? It's really tough, right? And we're actually analyzing some data on this at the moment, taking over a million ads that we've analyzed in our system over the last 12 months and looking at how some of these different things that we've talked about differ based on the campaign objective. Mm -hmm. So is the campaign objective brand awareness or reach, which as you correctly pointed out, is very different than direct response. And we presume different things will have different impact, right? When we talk about basic things that create, like there's one creative best practice that again, all these different platforms recommend, which is call to action. But when we look at the data, call to action is really important when it's a direct response ad, right? Mm -hmm. Like click here, buy this, go here. Yeah maybe less important when it's a brand ad, where the point is to leave some sort of lasting impression. And so this is where you do see caveats and, and you do see kind of shades of gray. Are you going to figure that part out? Because if you can, that would be great. <laughs> That's what we're trying to, we're, we're trying to figure it out. But, you know, I also think as a technology company that is trying to help build technology to enhance creative expression, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that creativity doesn't work in set parameters, right? And so for things like your Super Bowl ad, mm -hmm. you're gonna break the rules and that's a good thing, right? So what we're trying to solve is 99% of a brand's content is going to be that content, which is about staying top of mind, building some sort of engagement, et cetera. And we believe some framework for that is good because time and time again, we see the stuff drives better ROI. But there are gonna be these brand moments where you should very intentionally break all the rules we try and encourage that in as much as possible, which is why when some of our customers come in and they actually set, can set goals in our platform based on some of the metrics we report, we report on something we call creative excellence rate, right? Which is the percentage of content that meets all of your criteria, creative excellence spend rate, the percentage of spend that goes behind all that content. And a brand's first reaction is, 
okay, great. My goal is a hundred percent. Yeah. And we say, well, well, let's hold off, right? Maybe it shouldn't be a hundred percent. Maybe it should be 80% because you should leave that 20% for experimentation. So you can find those other best practices, consistency elements, et cetera, that you can then feed in to say, okay, now we should start doing this too. I'm glad to hear you say that because one question I had for you was really about asking, how does the creative community feel about being measured in this manner? You know, thinking about when you first started Creative X, was that a barrier that you saw yourself kind of having to overcome? Do creatives feel threatened or do they feel like that this was a useful tool for them? The first product we launched, a product that we called Creative Diagnostics, was essentially a case study in what not to do when trying to engage with the creative community. (laughs) And the first product we launched was basically something that looked at extracting any visual attributes from the piece of content and then tying that back to performance data. So we'd be like, oh, great. Our system recognizes dogs. When you have dogs in the ad, click-through increases by 20% or like hands, hands are great. Put hands in every image, right? Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, it's very sexy. It's very sexy to be like, we can measure a hundred thousand things and tie them to performance data. But the lesson we learned very, very painfully in our early days was that is not how creativity works nor is it how creativity should work. And I think where what sort of saved us from another company that failed was some degree of humility to recognize that and to go back and say, what can we do that's actually useful and in line with the way that we think the creative process should work? And this is where we heard loud and clear this feedback was measurement wasn't the issue. It was about that what we were measuring was leading down this very prescriptive path, Mm -hmm. which was often not accurate. Like just because, you know, I remember one insight, we did some early analysis, I think for Volvo back in the day. And one of the things we pulled out was that having dresses in the image, you know, increased click through or something. I, I can't even remember what it was now. And their feedback was like, okay, great. Like we're not a clothing company, so who cares? But what we heard when we went back and, and really tried to listen was that trying to measure these broader concepts that again, gave them a chance to figure out what the canvas was so they can paint and create in that canvas was what was useful, which is what led us to redefine and really shift the company away from being constant creative performance optimization, which by the way, I still think there's room for if you don't really care about the brand, right? If, if you're very much about, hey, I'm not trying to build brand here. I'm just trying to drive sales and that's it. Yeah. But for the majority of our customers who similar to the likes of Unilever, you know, whether it's Pepsi or Nestle or Mars or Mondelez, et cetera, what they care about is building better global brands. And so this rabbit hole of concept performance optimization because actually can be very, very risky for them. Do you ever start these projects with a hypothesis that you bring to your clients or do they formulate one? And I guess I'm asking before you unleash your technology on creative, what kind of happens there? And was there ever a time where results actually surprised you? We are constantly surprised by how few of the ads that brands are running before they start working with us actually adhere to their own internal standards of quality and consistency and all of that. I mean, it is a constant surprise, Mm. mostly because the assumption that I erroneously always made was big companies have lots of resources. They work with lots of agencies. There are lots of people to oversee this, but actually therein lies the problem, right? Because there's so many people creating content and running content, et cetera, 
that creates a fragmentation problem, which leads to all these things to kind of fall through the cracks. I want to turn branding to you and Creative X for a second and kind of ask, you know, what is Creative X's raw truth? What do you consider to be distinctive and unchangeable for your company? What is our raw truth? Raw truth feels like such a powerful concept. Mm -hmm. We thought about this a little bit around how do we determine our values as a company? Yeah. And how do they translate to how we behave and how we make decisions, et cetera? And we went through this exercise as a company last year where everyone participated and we actually figured out, hey, this is us. It's not for everyone. Some people are not going to like it, but this is us. And there are a couple of things that came out of that, which to your question, probably do encompass both the way we behave as individuals within this company, as well as how we think about building product. One of them is called thinking curiously, operating analytically. You know, the intent there is we want people to take risks. We want people to try anything once, as long as it sort of doesn't hurt anyone or anything like that. But we ultimately want them to measure, right? We want them to measure. We want them to use this data to make decisions. And that's kind of how we've also thought about product, right? We want to see lots of creative experimentation. We want to see lots of people. But what we're trying to do is provide a measurement framework around that. I think the other value that we have, which is my favorite, frankly, is called constructive dissent and conclusive decisions. And if you're familiar with Amazon's values, it's it's a bit ripped off from that. Here's a question that I ask all of my guests because I always get such interesting answers, which is write the headline five years from now in a glowing feature story about CreativeX. You know what it is? And maybe I'm misinterpreting your question, but If I had to write a headline that I think would make me really proud, Mm -hmm. I think the headline would be something like CreativeX, now a billion dollar company, voted best place to work for. At the end of the day, I, I mean, I love building technology and I love building product, but what has made this journey at times bearable when it was very difficult, you know, I didn't pay myself for years and it was a slog and all of that, have been all the people who've kind of come along on the journey. So... I think something that would make me really proud. I'm excited about what CreativeX is doing for our industry personally. Their technology is only going to make our work better. I mean, having a visual dashboard to see all creative messages in one place, that's invaluable. As a strategist, one of the first things I do is start to look for patterns in that data and use that to inform my next creative brief. I can see how a tool like this allows brand managers, creative teams, and social strategists really analyze what's working so they can make better creative decisions. And another takeaway from this conversation with Anastasia is context is everything. Just because an image of a dog increases performance by 20% doesn't mean you need to place a dog in your ad about glasses. Although a dog in glasses will make me laugh every time, but that's besides the point. That's not how creativity should work. And we should never just blindly apply learnings without the context of the brand. It sounds simple, but I've seen brands really gloss over that fact. And finally, take the time to create creative quality standards for your brand and measure what's important to you and your audience. It's important to think of content streams in two distinct lanes, brand building, and portfolio building. Portfolio building is all about selling something. 
And brand building is all of the other things you have the authority to talk about beyond the sale. Think seeing creative for Volvo's monthly lease deals, that's portfolio building, versus an online video about texting and driving and safety, that's branded content. A healthy mix of the two will ensure audiences stay engaged. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist of Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. People hire me when they need a strategic unlock to compete. I turn that into smart creative briefs and content strategies that inspire creative teams to produce their best work for your brand. You can learn more at brandcrudo.com. I'd like to thank Anastasia Lang, CEO of CreativeX. You can check out their services and download some really cool free thinking at creativex.com. It's creative with an X at the end.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate and review this episode. Thanks so much for listening.